Hi, this is John from Prodigal Church. We want to thank you for listening to this week's teaching. The best way to watch and listen is through our Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store. We hope you are moved to love God and others in a greater way. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. Happy New Year. It feels so good to be in 2021. We are so grateful for you and we're excited for what this new year brings. I know that for many of us, 2020 felt like a storm, felt like the waters were rising. Uh, Maybe we felt like Noah and being in our home so often, maybe we felt like we were living with a bunch of animals. And so there is a lot to relate to in the story of Noah. And we're going to be journeying through his story for the next three Sundays. And we can't wait. Uh, When I was a kid, I thought that Jesus' last name was Christ. I thought it was Jesus Christ, and he came from the Christ family. Uh, Welcome to the Christ home. That's what I thought was pictured at his mat every time you walk up to his house. The same is true for Noah. I thought Noah's last name was Zark. Z-A-R-K, the Zark family. Uh, the, The truth is, we rarely ever talk about Noah beyond his boat. And the story of Noah and his ark has captivated uh, people for thousands of years. We've heard about it in Sunday school. We've seen, about, we've seen it in movies in Hollywood. And there's even plenty of documentaries about Noah, his ark. Where is it? Can it be found? How do you construct it? Is it even possible? And maybe one of my favorite things about Noah is that there is a plethora of jokes available about Noah and his ark. Just good classic Bible jokes. Okay, here are a few. What did Noah say when he finished loading all the animals? Well, now I've heard everything. Okay, that, that's funny. I, I don't care who you are. What kind of lights did Noah have on the ark? Floodlights, of course. And then finally, does anyone know someone who can fit all animals onto a ship? Well, I know a guy. I know a guy. These are, these are good. If you laughed, I know some of you held back chuckles. I know you were laughing inside. Uh, today, I'd like to kind of set the stage for the sermon series. We're going to kind of look at some of the questions that have haunted and helped scholars and theologians and Christians over the centuries. And we're going to be doing a bit of history, archaeology, uh, philosophy, theology, and it's all to help us fathom the lore of this amazing tale of Noah and his ark. And first things first, uh, I think it's important to say that Noah's Ark isn't a children's story. Okay, now I know what you might be thinking, of course it is. I heard it in Sunday school every week. Uh, There's songs about it. There's a cute little boat and nice cuddly little animals. And then the story ends with a rainbow. Okay, of course it has to be a kid's story. Uh, The real story uh, found in Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9 is definitely not PG. Okay? It's rated R. It's rated R for depictions of violence, alcohol use, and nudity. Okay, It's in the Bible. You can read it for yourself. I encourage you to do so this week. But as we'll soon discover, this is no kid's fairy tale. We'll eventually get to reading the text, but first, let's get dig into some history. Okay, In November 1872, there was a self-taught historian named George Smith who was going through the archives in a British museum of fragments on clay tablets of texts, just thousands and thousands of texts on clay tablets in an ancient language called cuneiform. And the language had only recently been recovered and translated after about a thousand years of obscurity. 
most of the fragments contained just a bunch of accounting records and different opaque prophecies from different uh, priests. But then Smith found something remarkable. As he began translating word for word from cuneiform to English, he found a, a familiar story being unfolded. There was a God punishing humanity be, with a catastrophic flood. A man who God chose to survive, um, and he specifically asked him to construct a boat with animals and seeds in it. And after the flood, birds are being released to find dry land. Though this wasn't the story of Noah found in the Bible, um, in the book of Genesis, what Smith had discovered was one chapter of a riveting ancient Mesopotamian tale called the Epic of Gilgamesh. It was first written in 1800 BC, roughly a thousand years before the story of Noah was written uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Now the discovery, it appeared to demonstrate that the Bible's account of the ancient flood was perhaps borrowed from other ancient myths at the time. And the connections to Noah's Ark were unmistakable. Okay, both had a divine commitment to destroy most of humanity, uh, the focus on a named flood survivor, building an ark or a boat that's described in detail in the narrative, uh, animals being put on board to preserve their species, the flood, obviously, uh, sending out birds to see if the flood waters have receded, and then post-flood sacrifices to repair the relationship between humanity and the divine. Before there was Noah and the flood, there was Utna Pishtim and the flood. It doesn't quite have the same roll of the tongue as Noah does. Now, we're going to contrast these stories later, but I think many of you are catching on that this could have massive ramifications for biblical interpretation, right? And over the last hundred years, uh, we've experienced that. In 1985, a man named Irving Finkel, um, cousins with Ray Finkel from Ace Ventura, discovered another ancient flood narrative uh, that was even older than the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, now, we have come to discover, scientists and archaeologists and biblical theologians, that nearly all continents, amongst almost all peoples in the world, have some kind of ancient catastrophic flood account. Uh, anthropologists have collected roughly 275 early flood accounts. Uh, some, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, are older than the biblical account of Noah. In a top of history and the archaeology, scientists will begin to debate on whether it is even possible. Um, some think that it must have been a local flood. That when it says the whole world, it meant the whole world of Noah, all that he understood. And when it says every animal on earth, it was every animal that was native to their region. Or many scholars will just simply conclude that the Noah's Ark account is simply a commentary contrasting the God of the Hebrews versus the God of the Babylonians. Um, and it's a contrasting myth that deals with theological truth, not historical fact. Now, as you can probably tell, that for many Christians, these new discoveries or these new theories are not thrilling, they are threatening. And really, ever since George Smith translated Gilgamesh, many Christians have been on a journey, a crusade, to reaffirm Noah's Ark. Millions and millions of dollars have been spent to, to find the remains of Noah's Ark, perhaps on Mount Ararat. And if we can only find the real Noah's Ark, then the biblical account will be found to be true. Millions and millions have been spent defending not just Noah's Ark, but a young earth understanding that includes 
and doesn't exclude scientific fact. So there's this journey to, to validate the most simple reading of Noah's Ark. There's actually a museum in Kentucky that offers proof with life-size replica of Noah's famous boat. Now, when discoveries in God's world conflict with understandings of God's word, we have three choices. Let me, let me say that again. When discoveries in God's world conflict with interpretations of God's word, Christians have three options. Number one, abandon our faith in order to accept the results of science. Okay, Christians, by definition, we, re we reject option number one. Number two, deny the scientific evidence and maintain our interpretations of Scripture. Okay, this, this has a terrible track record in church history, and many prominent historical theologians have urged us not to ignore or dismiss the findings of science. And option three, which I think represents the best among our Christian faith history, is, and history shows us that many examples of our knowledge of the natural world help us correct interpretations of Scripture. As biblical scholar John Walton says, the Bible was written for us all, but not written to us all. So to understand what Genesis meant, we first need to understand what it meant to those who wrote it and received it. And it was a common practice in the ancient world to use an event or a memory of an event and retell it in a way to communicate a message to its hearers. This was a popular genre of literature and storytelling. There is good historical and scriptural evidence that the flood story is an interpretation of an actual historical event retold in a rhetoric and theology of ancient Israel, of the Hebrew people. And the Genesis account is one of many catastrophic flood accounts told throughout the world. It doesn't mean that Genesis 6 through 9 didn't actually happen uh, or that they stole these stories from other cultures, but that all of these stories are based on a common cultural memory of an ancient flood of cataclysmic proportions. None of this denies the inspiration of God's word. The story of Noah, the ark, the flood, speaks an inspired and powerful message of judgment and grace. That God instructs his people throughout the age. God's hatred of sin and God's love and desire to preserve creation. Most importantly, we see God's promise to never destroy the earth again. That's the truth found in Noah's Ark, is that God makes a covenant with humanity never to destroy the earth again. And this covenant comes to fulfillment in Jesus, where instead of the judgment and the wrath that our sin deserves, God himself takes it upon him. And it's nailed to that old rugged cross. So thus, in Christ and through the lens of Christ, we see Noah as a proclamation of God's gospel, God's good grace towards humanity, his love for humanity. More on that in a couple of weeks. Okay, and, and specifically the finale of this sermon series. So, so what are you saying, John? Was it a localized flood in the ancient Near East or was it a global flood on the entire earth? Was it, was it two of every kind of animal or was it two of every kind of animal native to ancient Israel? Was Noah's Ark historical fact or was it a contrast to other gods of the ancient Near East? And the answer, of course, is yes. The Bible 
is beautiful. It's like a diamond and you stare at its beauty and you think, once you think you can grasp all of the intricacies and all of the beauty and all of the wonder and all of the lenses that we see inside a beautiful diamond, if you just change your perspective, if you just change the angle at which you look at it, it opens up a whole new world of beauty. That is the scriptures. And that is what we're going to be doing through the story of Noah. We're going to be changing our angle. We're going to be looking at it through a different lens. And we just might discover more beauty, more truths that make this so much greater than just a good children's story. As soon as you think you know its depth, it opens up a whole new world. You guys ready? Okay, I think that most of us are familiar with the story. And again, we're going to dive more into this story in the weeks to come. Um, but we, we really want to flood your minds with this narrative. Okay, the wickedness of the human race becomes great. Every inclination of the human heart is evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made humanity and his heart was deeply troubled. So God was going to get rid of them all. But Noah found favor with God. He was righteous with God. And he had three sons. God instructs Noah to build a boat and he gives very specific instructions on how to do so. He tells Noah to get two of every animal, put them in the boat because I'm going to flood the earth. And then there's a lot of sevens and Noah does everything the Lord says to, according to his specifications. And on the 17th day of the second month, when Noah was 600 years old, Noah, his three sons and their wives enter the ark and it begins to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now it only rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but the earth was flooded for long points after that. It was 150 days. And to see how far the water had receded, Noah would release uh, ravens and then eventually a dove. And then when the dove eventually didn't come back, he realized that it was safe to walk out. And when Noah first lands on the shore, after being on a boat, Surrounded by water and animals for 150 days, the first thing he does is sacrifice to God. Then God displays a beautiful rainbow as a symbol, as a sign to humanity that he will never again flood the earth the way in which he did in the days of Noah. The end. But not really. That, that's where we stop. That's where we stop in Sunday school. But there's more, right? Noah then blesses his children, um, gets hammer drunk, passes out naked. Okay, again, we'll get there later. We're going to leave that part out right now as well. So that's the story of Noah. And as we close out week one of this series, I want us to look at the structure of this narrative. I want to, I want to, I want to change our angle of viewing once again and just see that even if we look at this story from a bird's eye view and we look at the literary structure of it, what can it tell us about God his love for humanity and his love for you and I. I think we're going to find out that this story, even the way in which the story is shaped, can be edifying. So the story of Noah is told through an ancient literary device called a chiasm. Okay, a chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. Okay, some chiasms are quite simple. The common saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Okay, that, that is a chiasm. That, 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 there's a chiastic structure there, right? The words going and tough are repeated, and then they're repeated in reverse order. Uh, the result is a mirror effect. 
as, I, as the ideas are reflected back in a passage. Here's another modern day chiasm that I constructed myself. See if you can find some truth in this. Patrick Mahomes is the Chiefs quarterback. He is an inspiration to me. He throws a perfect ball with his perfect arm. Patrick Mahomes is my best friend. His accuracy and power are perfection. He inspires the millions every Sunday. Patrick Mahomes plays for the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, this is a chiasm, a picture-perfect chiasm, if you will. Now, uh, the, the story of, of Noah is written as a chiasm. Okay, why? Why would ancient writers choose to tell this story uh, in a strategic way like this? And the reason is twofold. Number one, these were stories that were, that were passed down orally first before they were ever written down. Okay, they were told at campfires. Um, they were told on walks. Uh, th these were told uh, to family members and friends throughout the ages long before it was ever written down. And a chiastic structure helps in memorization. Okay, number two, and this was the most prominent reason why uh, a chiasm was used in ancient Israel. A chiasm gives prominence to the central statement. Okay, in my Mahomes chiasm, the central statement is the main point. It's the turning point. It's what I'm trying to say above all else. So what is the central point of, of this chiasm? Uh, well, it's that Patrick Mahomes is my best friend, my very best friend, uh, right? The effect of this pattern is to give prominence to the central statement. That's the turning point. That's the main point, okay? The pivot. So what's the central statement in the story of Noah and his ark? What's the pivot? Well, it's found in chapter 8, verse 1, and it is this that God remembers Noah. Isn't that beautiful? That the entire story hinges and points to that one truth, that God remembers Noah. Uh, the main point isn't human beings are evil. The main point isn't God is wrathful. The main point isn't Noah is faithful. The main point is God remembers. And I really sense God is trying to tell us this in a theme because a month ago when we went through the story of Zechariah, his name means God remembers. Yahweh remembers. And so here again we find this, this truth. God remembers. I don't know what that means for you right now. Maybe you think some of you have, are just convinced that God, you are forgotten by God. And God is saying again, I remember. God remembers Noah, and God remembers you. In the middle of this crazy storm we're going through right now, in the middle of crazy storms that you yourself are going through right now, God remembers. Now every Wednesday at 12 o'clock throughout this pandemic, we have gathered online for a short prayer meeting. Uh, sometimes five minutes long, sometimes up to 20 minutes long. And everyone's invited, it's on Zoom, and uh, normally there's only a handful of us there. Some of the staff, some of the people from the church, and man, we have a great time. Uh, this past Wednesday uh, at Noonday Prayer, I kind of let everyone in on what I was going to be sharing about throughout this Noah series in the beginning of 2021. And as I'm sharing it, uh, Gary Preeb, this amazing uh, Christ-centered leader within our church, um, as he was praying, he prayed something along the lines of, and God, as Noah finally stepped out onto the earth and saw the light of day and experienced the beauty around him, may we as a church, may we as a community of faith 
to experience the light of day and the fullness of life we have in Christ. And I thought, wow, that is so true. May it be so for us now and beyond this series. We have been in this boat that we call our homes since March. And it's been raining nonstop. In fact, it's been pouring. And there's rumors of thunder and lightning that it's going to get worse before it gets better. But God remembers. May we experience the light of day that comes to experience this, this new life that God has for us in Christ. We will step out on that shore and we will experience the sun again. That's my encouragement to us through Noah and through Gary that God remembers and that he will get us through this storm. God, we pray in Jesus' name that through the storm, we are able to proclaim your Lord over all. We need you, Jesus, that you, you are Christ alone and you are our solid rock. You are our firm foundation. You're our cornerstone. And so God, we thank you that through the storm, you are Lord, Lord of all. God bless you, Prodigal Church.